Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and this week we will navigate together tales of both crime and punishment. Let's kick off this episode with the traditional iTunes review. Has quickly become a favorite by Hey Snow White. Sean Ennis has a natural gift for voice acting and narration. His voice is deep, resonant, and soothing. I love this show so much. I've particularly enjoyed his curating classic stories and classic authors. H.P. Lovecraft, Poe, Washington Irving, and O. Henry have been particular treats. I really liked the Washington Irving stories because I listened to The Legend of Sleepy Hollow with my kindergarten-age son, who asked to listen to it again the next two nights. I would love having a few more like that sprinkled in that can be listened to by the whole family, especially around the holidays. My son also really likes the narration. Please, more of these aforementioned authors, especially Dear O. Henry. Interesting factoid, there's an O. Henry hotel in his hometown of Greensboro. I like the originals, and I'd love to hear more myth-origin type stories like the Kipling tale about the cat. My son asked to listen to that twice, too. Many thanks to Hey Snow White for the review, and I do have some more of those kinds of stories mentioned in that review planned for this season, so stay tuned. Of course, leaving a review is a great way to support the show, and you can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Podcast, or you can become a patron over on Patreon. Many thanks indeed to my current patrons, Dan, Nick, and Kayla, and there's plenty more room for anyone else who wants to join and take part in the many perks of being a Stories of Your and Yours patron. Now before we get started this week, don't forget we've got a live stream for The Cure coming up on May 18th to the 20th. Let's hear from Nick and Justin, otherwise known as the Epic Film Guys, about that event. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin, and we can't believe it's already time for the 2019 live stream for The Cure. Thanks to our amazing peers, listeners, and supporters, last year we crushed our goal of $5,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. The Cancer Research Institute is funding research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. Every single cent we raise goes to them. And they're also rated over 92% on CharityNavigator.org. This year, we're aiming our sights even higher with our most ambitious event to date. Join us May 17th through the 19th on twitch.tv slash epicfilmguys for 40 hours of live content from us and other amazing shows who will join us to try to reach $7,500. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure for more information or to find out how you can be a part of the event. Together, we can make a difference. Well, if you heard the tease at the end of last week's episode, you know we have two stories this week. One from an author we've heard about previously, and one from an author we haven't yet been able to feature. As you may know, at the beginning of this year, 2019, for the first time in 20 years, new works entered the public domain in the United States, where this show is based. One author whose earliest works entered the public domain this year was Agatha Christie, whose story The Million Dollar Bond Robbery will be featured today. This is actually the only short story to enter the public domain this year, as it was published in 1923. A few other novels have entered before this year. Next year, there are several more that will enter the public domain, and we'll have more to choose from. But this was a good start. So let's talk about who Agatha Christie was. She was born Agatha Miller in 1890 in Torquay, England. Her father was American, and she was schooled at home mostly by him until his death when she was only 11 years old. Christie's interest in writing began in her teenage years, when she would write short stories to amuse herself. In 1914, she was wed to Arthur Christie, though they would spend most of their time apart during World War I, only truly beginning their life together when Archie, who was an aviator with the Royal Flying Corps, was posted to the war office. It was during this time that Agatha Christie would create one of her most famous characters, Detective Hercule Poirot. She worked on her first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Stiles, while also working in the dispensary in the hospital where she worked. Working as a pharmacist, she also acquired knowledge of poisons, which would come in handy for this particular novel. The Mysterious Affair at Stiles was published in 1920, after being turned down by the first three publishers to whom it was submitted. These publishers would likely feel pretty silly down the line, as Christie has gone on to be the best-selling novelist of all time, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Christie found great success in pretty short order after the publication of her first novel, and became very well known. 
She created her other most well-known character, Miss Marple, along with Tommy and Tuppence, in 1922. It was certainly not all sunshine and roses from there forward, however. Christie's mother, with whom she was very close, died in 1926, and shortly thereafter, Archie Christie would ask for a divorce. This capped off a very difficult year, in which Agatha was also feeling the effects of overexertion from spending so much time writing. In December of 1926, Christie disappeared for ten days. Her car was found shortly after she left home, but she would remain missing for several more days until she was recognized by the staff at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel, at which point Archie came to meet her. But apparently, she didn't recognize him, or remember who he was. She was diagnosed with amnesia by two doctors, who thought she may have experienced a fugue state. As a side note, Breaking Bad fans will be familiar with that term. This was a huge deal at the time. During the time when she was missing, over a thousand police officers and 15,000 volunteers searched for her. Her disappearance was news all over the world. In fact, our other feature author today, Arthur Conan Doyle, a noted believer in spiritualism, gave one of Christie's gloves to a medium in an attempt to find her. Things would improve in Christie's personal life as she met and married her second husband, Max Malloman, in 1930. They would remain married until Christie's death in 1976 at the age of 85. As noted before, today's story features Hercule Poirot, who appeared in 33 novels and 54 short stories. Miss Marple, Christie's other well-known protagonist, appeared in 12 novels and 20 short stories. In total, Christie published 66 detective novels and 14 short story collections, in addition to six romances under the name of Mary West Maycott. She also wrote the world's longest-running play, a murder mystery called The Mousetrap, which opened in London's West End in November of 1952 and is still running today. The story that we'll hear from Agatha Christie today, The Million Dollar Bond Robbery, was first published on May 2, 1923 in The Sketch. The Sketch was a weekly journal that focused on British high society and aristocracy, kind of like the People magazine of its day. In addition to their main content, they would also publish one short story per issue, and Christie was featured often. In all, she published 49 short stories in 1923 and 1924 in the sketch. Algernon Blackwood was another author that we featured here who was printed in the page of the sketch. The sketch ran from February 1893 until June of 1959. Now, I have just a few notes about this presentation of the Million Dollar Bond Robbery. First of all, it will feature a guest voice. Playing the part of Esme Farquhar is Lisa Michaud. Thank you, Lisa, for lending your voice to the story. You can follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa N. Michaud, and that's M-I-C-H-A-U-D is the last name. Now, Lisa's profile focuses mainly on computational linguistics and virtual assistants, so if you're looking for some knowledge in that area, you can give her a follow. And one other note about the presentation of the story, you'll notice that I give Hastings, who is Poirot's partner, an American accent, namely my accent. But the other characters in the story have British and French accents. Does Hastings actually have a British accent? Well, yeah, but the nice thing about hosting your own show is that you can cheat sometimes to make things a little bit easier. And frankly, it's just easier to narrate in my actual voice. So I did. I mean, if you can't cheat on your own show, where can you cheat? And one more note, there's one word used in this story that you might not be familiar with, and that is portmanteau. A portmanteau is a large trunk or suitcase, usually made out of stiff leather. Oh, and one other thing. There's a scene where Poirot and Hastings are walking down the street and there's street traffic noise in the background. So if you're driving, just be aware of that. Don't be startled if you hear a horn honking or something like that. Our second story this week is called B-24, and it is by the aforementioned Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a story told from a different perspective than what we're used to from Doyle. Of course, we featured his work in Season 1 with the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Speckled Band. But this particular story is not a Holmes mystery, and it is told from the perspective of the accused. B-24 was first published in March of 1899 in the Strand magazine. Now I'm going to keep this intro short because we've talked about Doyle and we talked about the Strand in episode 14 of season 1. But I do want to introduce yet another guest voice. Playing the part of Lady Mannerly will be Erin B. Lillis. Erin is a voice actress who has appeared in several productions. She's in the midst of starting a new podcast called The Sapphic Cast, that's S-A-P-P-H-I-C, She's also in the new Calling Darkness podcast, and she's been a regular voice actor on the very popular No Sleep podcast. You can find her work at erinlillis.com slash voice, that's L-I-L-L-I-S, and you can follow her on Twitter at R-A-V-I-E-1-3. 
All of this will, of course, be in the show notes, along with a Podchaser link for Aaron, so make sure you check out Aaron's other work. Finally, there is one word that I wasn't familiar with in this story, and that is a taper, which is essentially just a thin candle. So, that's the intro for our authors, our stories, and our super talented guest voices. Now, let's proceed with this week's presentation. The Million Dollar Bond Robbery by Agatha Christie What a number of bond robberies there have been lately, I observed one morning, laying aside the newspaper. Poirot, let us forsake the science of detection and take to crime instead. You are on the, as you say it, get-rich-quick tack, eh, mon ami? Well, look at this last coup. The million dollars worth of liberty bonds which the London and Scottish Bank were sending to New York and which disappeared in such a remarkable manner on board the Olympia. If it were not for the mal de mer and the difficulty of practicing the so excellent method of lagerjoire for a longer time than the few hours of crossing the Chanel, I should delight to voyage myself on one of these big liners, murmured Poirot dreamily. Yes, indeed, I said enthusiastically. Some of them must be perfect palaces, the swimming baths, the lounges, the restaurants, the palm courts. Really, it must be hard to believe that one is on the sea. Me? I always know when I am on the sea, said Poirot sadly. And all those bagatelles that you enumerate, they say nothing to me. But, my friend, consider for a moment the geniuses that travel, as it were, incognito, on board these floating palaces as you so justly call them. One would meet the elite, the haute noblesse of the criminal world. I laughed. <laughs> so that's the way your enthusiasm runs. You would have liked to cross swords with the man who sneaked the Liberty Bonds. The landlady interrupted us. A young lady wants to see you, Mr. Poirot. Here's her card. The card bore the inscription, Miss Esme Farquhar, and Poirot, after diving under the table to retrieve a stray crumb, nodded to the landlady to admit her. In another minute, one of the most charming girls I had ever seen was ushered into the room. She was perhaps about five-and-twenty, with big brown eyes and a perfect figure. She was well-dressed and perfectly composed in manner. "'Sit down, I beg of you, mademoiselle. This is my friend, Captain Hastings, who aids me in my little problems.' "'I am afraid it's a big problem I have brought to you today, Mr. Poirot,' said the girl, giving me a pleasant bow as she seated herself. "'I dare say you have read about it in the papers. I am referring to the theft of liberty bonds on the Olympia.' Some astonishment must have shown itself on Poirot's face, for she continued quickly. "'You are doubtless asking yourself what I have to do with a grave institution like the London and Scottish Bank. In one sense, nothing. In another sense, everything.' You see, Mr. Poirot, I am engaged to Mr. Philip Ridgway. Aha! And Mr. Philip Ridgway... Was in charge of the bonds when they were stolen. Of course no actual blame can attach to him. It was not his fault in any way. Nevertheless, he is half distraught over the matter. And his uncle, I know, insists that he must carelessly have mentioned having them in his possession. It is a terrible setback in his career. Who is his uncle? Mr. Vavasor. Joint General Manager of the London and Scottish Bank. Suppose, Miss Farquhar, that you recount to me the whole story. Very well. As you know, the bank wished to extend their credits in America, and for this purpose decided to send over a million dollars in Liberty Bonds. Mr. Vavasor selected his nephew, who had occupied a position of trust in the bank for many years, and was conversant with all the details of the bank's dealings in New York to make the trip. The Olympia sailed from Liverpool on the 23rd, and the bonds were handed over to Philip on the morning of that day by Mr. Vavasor and Mr. Shaw, the two joint general managers of the London and Scottish. They were counted, enclosed in a package, and sealed in his presence. And he then locked the package at once in his portmanteau. A portmanteau with an ordinary lock? No, Mr. Shaw insisted on a special lock being fitted to it by Mrs. Hubbs. Philip, as I say, placed the package at the bottom of the trunk. It was stolen just a few hours before reaching New York. A rigorous search of the whole ship was made, but without result. The bonds seemed literally to vanish into thin air. Poirot made a grimace. But they did not vanish absolutely, since I gather that they were sold in small parcels within a half an hour of the docking of the Olympia. 
Well, undoubtedly, the next thing is for me to see Mr. Ridgeway. I was about to suggest that you should lunch with me at the Cheshire Cheese. Philip will be there. He is meeting me, but does not yet know that I have been consulting you on his behalf. Philip Ridgeway was a pleasant-faced man of thirty-odd, with just a touch of graying hair at the temples. His face looked drawn and haggard. The theft of the bonds which had been placed in his charge had almost demoralized him, and he reproached himself vainly for not having exercised greater care. Over the excellent steak and kidney pudding of the establishment, he confirmed his fiancée's story in every particular. Poirot then proceeded to question him. "'What led you to discover that the bonds had been stolen, Mr. Ridgeway?' The man laughed rather bitterly. <laughs> the thing that stared me in the face, Mr. Poirot. I couldn't have missed it. My carbon trunk was half out from under the bunk, and all scratched and cut about where they had tried to force the lock. But I understood that it had been opened with a key. That's so. They tried to force it, but couldn't. And in the end, they got it unlocked somehow. Curious, said Poirot, his eyes beginning to flicker with the green light that I knew so well. Very curious. They waste much time trying to prise it open, and then, sapristi, they find they have the key all the time, for each of Monsieur's hub's locks is unique. They couldn't have had the key. It never left me day or night. You are sure of that? I can swear to it. And besides, if they had had the key or a duplicate, why should they waste time trying to force an obviously unforceable lock? Ah, there is exactly the question we are asking ourselves. You will see the solution, if we ever find it, will hinge on that curious fact. I beg of you not to assault me if I ask you one more question. Are you perfectly certain you did not leave the trunk unlocked? Philip Ridgway merely looked at him, and Poirot gesticulated apologetically. Ah, but these things can happen, I assure you. Very well, the bonds were stolen from the trunk. What did the thieves do with them? How did he manage to get ashore with them? "'Ah!' cried Widgeway. "'That's just it. "'How?' "'Word was passed to the customs authorities, "'and every soul that left the ship was gone over with a tooth comb. "'And the bonds, I gather, made a bulky package.' "'Certainly they did. "'They could hardly have been hidden on board, "'and anyway we know they weren't, "'because they were offered for sale within half an hour of the Olympia's arrival. "'Long before I got the cables going and the numbers sent out, "'one broker swears he bought some of them even before the Olympia got in. "'But you can't send bonds by wireless.' Not by wireless, but did any tug come alongside? Only the official ones. And that was after the alarm was given, when everyone was on the lookout. I was watching out myself for their being passed over to someone that way. Good Lord, Mr. Poirot, this thing will drive me mad. People are beginning to say I stole them myself. But you were also searched on the landing. Were you not? asked Poirot gently. Yes. The young man stared at him in a puzzled manner. You do not catch my meaning, I see said Poirot, smiling enigmatically. Now I should like to make a few inquiries at the bank. Ridgway produced a card and scribbled a few words on it. Send this in, and my uncle will see you at once. Poirot thanked him, bade farewell to Miss Farquhar, and together we started out for Threadneedle Street and the head office of the London and Scottish Bank. On production of Ridgway's card, we were led through the labyrinth of counters and desks, skirting paying-in clerks and paying-out clerks, and up to a small office on the first floor, where the joint general managers received us. They were two grave gentlemen, who had grown grey in the service of the bank. Mr. Vavasour had a short white beard. Mr. Shaw was clean-shaven. "'I understand you are a strictly private inquiry agent,' said Mr. Vavasour. "'Quite so, quite so. We have, of course, placed ourselves in the hands of Scotland Yard. Inspector McNeil has charge of the case. A very able officer, I believe.' "'I am sure of it,' said Poirot politely. "'You will permit a few questions on your nephew's behalf about this lock. "'Who ordered it from Monsieur Hubs?' "'I ordered it myself,' said Mr. Shaw. "'I would not trust any clerk in the matter. "'As to the case, Mr. Ridgway had one, "'and the other two are held by my colleague and myself.' "'And no clerk has had access to them?' "'Mr. Shaw turned inquiringly to Mr. Ravisour.' I think I am correct in saying that they have remained in the safe where we placed them on the twenty-third, said Mr. Vavasour, and then added, My colleague was unfortunately taken ill a fortnight ago, in fact, on the very day that Philip left us. He has only just recovered. Severe bronchitis is no joke to a man of my age, said Mr. Shaw ruefully. 
but I am afraid Mr. Vavasour has suffered from the odd work entailed by my absence, especially with this unexpected worry coming on top of everything. Poirot asked a few more questions. I judged that he was endeavoring to gauge the exact amount of intimacy between uncle and nephew. Mr. Vavasour's answers were brief and punctilious. His nephew was a trusted official of the bank and had no debts or money difficulties that he knew of. He had been entrusted with similar missions in the past. Finally, we were politely bowed out. "'I am disappointed,' said Poirot as we emerged into the street. "'You hope to discover more? They are such stodgy old men.' "'It is not their stodginess which disappoints me, mon ami. I do not expect to find in a bank manager a keen financier with an eagle glance.' as your favorite works of fiction put it. No, I am disappointed in the case. It is too easy. Easy? Yes. You do not find it almost childishly simple? You know who stole the bonds. I do. But then we must... Why, do not confuse and fluster yourself, Hastings. We are not going to do anything at the presence. But why? What are you waiting for? For the Olympia. She is due on a return trip from New York on Tuesday. But if you know who stole the bonds, why wait? He may escape. To a South Sea island where there is no extradition? No, mon ami, he would find life very uncongenial there. As to why I wait, eh bien, to the intelligence of Hercule Poirot, the case is perfectly clear. But for the benefit of others not so greatly gifted by the good god, the Inspector of McNeil, for instance, it would be as well to make a few inquiries to establish the facts. One must have consideration for those less gifted than oneself. Good Lord Poirot, do you know I'd give a considerable sum of money to see you make a thorough ass of yourself, just for once. You're so confoundedly conceited. Do not enrage yourself, Hastings. In verity, I observe that there are times when you almost detest me. Alas, I suffer the penalties of greatness. The little man puffed out his chest and sighed so comically that I was forced to laugh. Tuesday saw us speeding to Liverpool in a first-class carriage of the L and NWR. Poirot had obstinately refused to enlighten me as to his suspicions or certainties. He contented himself with expressing surprise that I too was not equally au fait with the situation. I disdained to argue and entrenched my curiosity behind a rampart of pretended indifference. Once arrived at the quay alongside which the big transatlantic liner, Poirot became brisk and alert. Our proceedings consisted in interviewing four successive stewards and inquiring after a friend of Poirot's who had crossed to New York on the 23rd. An elderly gentleman wearing glasses. A great invalid, hardly moved out of his cabin. The description appeared to tally with one Mr. Ventner, who had occupied the cabin C-24, which was next to that of Philip Ridgway. Although unable to see how Poirot had deduced Mr. Ventner's existence and personal appearance, I was keenly excited. Tell me, I cried, was this gentleman one of the first to land when you got to New York? The steward shook his head. No, indeed, sir. He was one of the last off the boat. I retired, crestfallen, and observed Poirot grinning at me. He thanked the steward, a note changed hands, and we took our departure. It's all very well, I remarked heatedly, but that last answer must have damped your precious theory. Grin as you please. As usual, you see nothing, Hastings. The last answer is, on the contrary, the coping stone of my theory. I flung up my hands in despair. I give it up. Once more, we were in a train, speeding towards London this time. Poirot wrote busily for a few minutes, and then sealed up the result in an envelope. This is for the good Inspector McNeil. We will leave it at Scotland Yard in passing, and then to the rendezvous restaurant where I have asked Mr. Esme Farquhar to do us the honor of dining with us. What about Ridgway? What about him? asked Poirot with a twinkle. Why, surely you don't think... Uh, you can't... The habit of incoherence is growing upon you, Hastings. As a matter of fact, I did think, if Ridgway had been the thief, which was perfectly possible, the case would have been charming, a piece of neat, methodical work, but not so charming for Miss Farquhar. Possibly you are right. Therefore, all is for the best. Now, Hastings, let us review the case. The sealed package is removed from the trunk and vanishes, as Miss Farquhar puts it, into thin air. We will dismiss the thin air theory, 
which is not practicable at present stage of science, and consider what is likely to have become of it. Everyone asserts the incredibility of its being smuggled ashore. Yes, but we know you may know Hastings. I do not. I take the view that since it seemed incredible, it was incredible. Two possibilities remain. It was hidden on board, also rather difficult, or it was thrown overboard. With a cork on it, you mean? Without a cork. I stared. But if the bonds were thrown overboard, they could not have been sold in New York. I admire your logical mind, Hastings. The bonds were sold in New York, therefore they were not thrown overboard. You see where that leads us? Where we were when we started? Jamais de la vie. If the package was thrown overboard and the bonds were sold in New York, the package could not have contained the bonds. Is there any evidence that the package did contain the bonds? Mr. Ridgway never opened it from the time it was placed in his hands in London. Yes, but then... Poirot waved an impatient hand. Permit me to continue. The last moment that the bonds are seen as bonds is in the office of the London and Scottish Bank on the morning of the 23rd. They reappear in New York half an hour after the Olympia gets in and, according to the man whom nobody listens to, actually before she gets in. Supposing, then, that they have never been on the Olympia at all, is there any other way they could get to New York? Yes, the Gigantic leaves from Southampton on the same day as the Olympia starts from Liverpool, and the former holds the record for the Atlantic. Mailed by the Gigantic, the bonds would be in New York the day before the Olympia arrived. All is clear. The case begins to explain itself. The sealed package is only a dummy. It would have been an easy matter for any of the three men present to prepare a duplicate package which could be substituted for the genuine one. Très bien, the bonds are made to a confederate in New York with instructions to sell as soon as the Olympia is in, but someone must travel on the Olympia to engineer the supposed moment of the robbery. But why? Because if Ridgway merely opens the packet and finds it a dummy, suspicion flies at once to London. No, the man on board the cabin next door does his work, pretends to force the lock in an obvious manner so as to draw immediate attention to the theft, rarely unlocks the trunk with a duplicate key, throws the package overboard, and waits until the last to leave the boat. Naturally, he wears glasses to conceal his eyes and is an invalid since he does not want to run the risk of meeting Ridgway. He steps ashore in New York and returns by the first boat available. But who, which was he? The man who had a duplicate key? The man who ordered the lock? The man who has not been severely ill with bronchitis at home in his country? Enfin, that stodgy old man, Mr. Shaw. There are criminals in high places sometimes, my friend. Ah, here we are. Mademoiselle, I have succeeded. You permit? And, beaming, Poirot kissed the astonished girl lightly on either cheek. B-24 by Arthur Conan Doyle I told my story when I was taken and nobody would listen to me. Then I told it again at the trial, the whole thing, absolutely as it happened, without so much as a word added. I said it all out truly, so help me God, all that Lady Mannering said and did, and then all that I had said and done, just as it occurred. And what did I get for it? The prisoner put forward a rambling and inconsequential statement, incredible in its details and unsupported by any shred of corroborative evidence. That was what one of the London papers said, and others let it pass as if I had made no defense at all. And yet, with my own eyes, I saw Lord Mannering murdered, and I am as guiltless of it as any man on the jury that tried me. Now, sir, you are there to receive the petitions of prisoners. It all lies with you. 
All I ask is that you read it. Just read it. And then that you make an inquiry or two about the private character of this Lady Mannering. If she still keeps the name that she had three years ago, when to my sorrow and ruin I came to meet her. You could use a private inquiry agent or a good lawyer, and you would soon learn enough to show you that my story is the true one. Think of the glory it would be to you to have all the papers saying that there would have been a shocking miscarriage of justice if it had not been for your perseverance and intelligence. That must be your reward, since I am a poor man and can offer you nothing. But if you don't do it, may you never lie easy in your bed again. May no night pass that you are not haunted by the thought of the man who rots in jail because you have not done the duty which you are paid to do. But you will do it, sir, I know. Just make one or two inquiries, and you will soon find which way the wind blows. <laughs> Remember also that the only person who profited by the crime was herself, since it changed her from an unhappy wife to a rich young widow. There's the end of the string in your hand, and you only have to follow it up and see where it leads to. Mind you, sir, I make no complaint as far as the burglary goes. I don't whine about what I have deserved, and so far I have had no more than I have deserved. Burglary it was, right enough, and my three years have gone to pay for it. It was shown at the trial that I had had a hand in the Martin Cross business and did a year for that, so my story had the less attention on that account. A man with a previous conviction never gets a really fair trial. I own up to the burglary, but when it comes to the murder which brought me a lifer, any judge but Sir James might have given me the gallows, well, then I tell you that I had nothing to do with it, and that I am an innocent man. And now I'll take that night, the 13th of September, 1894, and I'll give you just exactly what occurred. And may God's hand strike me down if I go one inch over the truth. I had been at Bristol in the summer looking for work, and then I had a notion that I might get something at Portsmouth, for I was trained as a skilled mechanic. So I came tramping my way across the south of England, and doing odd jobs as I went. I was trying all I knew to keep off the cross, for I had done a year in Exeter jail, and I had had enough of visiting Queen Victoria. But it's cruel hard to get work once the black mark is against your name, and it was all I could do to keep soul and body together. At last, after ten days of wood-cutting and stone-breaking on starvation pay, I found myself near Salisbury with a couple of shillings in my pocket, and my boots and my patience clean worn out. There's an alehouse called the Willing Mind, which stands on the road between Blandford and Salisbury, and it was there that night that I engaged a bed. I was sitting alone in the taproom just about closing time when the innkeeper, Alan his name was, came beside me and began yarning about the neighbors. He was a man that liked to talk and to have someone listen to his talk, so I sat there smoking and drinking a mug of ale which he had stood me, and I took no great interest in what he had said until he began to talk, as the devil would have it, about the riches of Mannering Hall. Meaning the large house on the right before I came to the village, said I, the one that stands in its own park? Exactly, said he, and I am giving you all our talk so that you may know I am telling you the truth and hiding nothing. The long white house with the pillars, said he, at the side of Blandford Road. Now I had looked at it as I passed, and it had crossed my mind as such thoughts will that it was a very easy house to get into with that great row of ground windows and glass doors. I had put the thought away from me, and now here was this landlord bringing it back with his talk about the riches within. I said nothing, but I listened, and as luck would have it, he would always come back to this one subject. He was a miser young, so you can think what he is now in his age, said he. Well, he's had some good out of his money. What good can he have had if he does not spend it, said I. Well, it bought him the prettiest wife in England, and that was some good that he got out of it. She thought she would have the spending of it, but she knows the difference now. Who was she then? I asked, just for the sake of something to say. She was nobody at all until the Lord made her his lady, said he. She came up from London way, and some said that she had been on the stage there, though nobody knew. The old Lord was away for a year, and when he came home he brought a young wife back with him, and there she has been ever since. Stevens, the butler, did tell me once that she was the light of the house when first she came, but that with her husband's mean and aggravating way, and what with her loneliness— for he hates to see a visitor within his doors, and, and what with his bitter words, for he has a tongue like a hornet's sting, her life all went out of her, and she became a white, silent creature, moping about the country lanes. Some say that she loved another man, and that it was just the riches of the old lord which tempted her to be false to her lover, and that now she is eating her heart out because she has lost the one without being any nearer to the other, for she might be the poorest woman in the parish for all the money that she has the handling of. Well, sir... You can imagine that it did not interest me very much to hear about the quarrels between a lord and a lady. 
What did it matter to me if she hated the sound of his voice, or if he put every indignity upon her in the hope of breaking her spirit and spoke to her as he would never have dared to speak to one of his servants? The landlord told me of these things and many more like them, but they passed out of my mind, for they were no concern of mine. But what I did want to hear was the form in which Lord Mannering kept his riches. Title deeds and stock certificates are but paper, and more danger than profit to the man who takes them. But metal and stones are worth a risk. And then, as if he were answering my very thoughts, the landlord told me of Lord Mannering's great collection of gold medals, that it was the most valuable in the world, and that it was reckoned that if they were put in a sack, the strongest man in the parish would not be able to raise them. Then his wife called him, and he and I went to our beds. I am not arguing to make out a case for myself, but I beg you, sir, to bear all the facts in your mind and to ask yourself whether a man could be more sorely tempted than I was. I make bold to say that there are few who could have held out against it. There I lay on my bed that night, a desperate man without hope or work, and with my last shilling in my pocket. I had tried to be honest, and honest folk had turned their backs upon me. They taunted me for theft, and yet they pushed me toward it. I was caught in the stream and could not get out. And then it was such a chance. The great house all lined with windows, the golden metals which could so easily be melted down. It was like putting a loaf before a starving man and expecting him not to eat it. Well, I fought against it for a time, but it was no use. At last I sat up on the side of my bed and I swore that that night I should either be a rich man and able to give up crime forever, or that the irons should be in my wrists once more. Then I slipped on my clothes, and, having put a shilling on the table, for the landlord had treated me well, and I did not wish to cheat him, I passed out through the window into the garden of the inn. There was a high wall round this garden, and I had a job to get over it, but once on the other side it was all plain sailing. I did not meet a soul upon the road, and the iron gate of the avenue was open. No one was moving at the lodge. The moon was shining, and I could see the great house shimmering white through an archway of trees. I walked up it for a quarter of a mile or so until I was at the edge of the drive where it ended in a broad, graveled space before the main door. There I stood in the shadow and looked at the long building with a full moon shining in every window and silvering the high stone front. I crouched there for some time and I wondered where I should find the easiest entrance. The corner window of the side seemed to be the one which was least overlooked and a screen of ivy hung heavily over it. My best chance was evidently there. I worked my way under the trees to the back of the house and then crept along in the black shadow of the building. A dog barked and rattled his chain, but I stood waiting until he was quiet and then I stole on once more until I came to the window which I had chosen. It is astonishing how careless they are in the country, in places far removed from large towns where the thought of burglars never enters their heads. I call it setting temptation in a poor man's way when he puts his hand, meaning no harm, upon a door and finds it swing open before him. In this case it was not so bad as that, but the window was merely fastened with an ordinary catch, which I opened with a push from the blade of my knife. <laughs> I pulled up the window as quickly as possible, and then I thrust the knife through the slit in the shutter and prized it open. There were folding shutters, and I shoved them before me and walked into the room. "'Good evening, sir. You are very welcome,' said a voice. Now, "'I've had some starts in my life, but never one to come up to that one. There, in the opening of the shutters, within the reach of my arm,' was standing a woman with a small coil of wax taper burning in her hand. She was tall and straight and slender, with a beautiful white face that might have been cut out of clear marble, but her hair and her eyes were as black as night. She was dressed in some sort of white dressing gown which flowed down to her feet, and what with this robe and what with her face, it seemed as if a spirit from above was standing in front of me. My knees knocked together, and I held onto the shutter with one hand to give me support, I should have turned and run away if I had the strength, but I could only just stand and stare at her. She soon brought me back to myself once more. Don't be frightened, said she, and they were strange words for the mistress of a house to have to use on a burglar. I saw you out of my bedroom window when you were hiding under those trees, so I slipped downstairs, and then I heard you at the window. I should have opened it for you if you had waited, but you managed it yourself just as I came up. I still held in my hand the long clasp knife with which I had opened the shutter. I was unshaven and grimed from a week on the roads. Altogether, there are few people who would have cared to face me alone at one in the morning, but this woman, if I had been her lover meeting her by appointment, could not have looked upon me with a more welcoming eye. She laid her hand upon my sleeve and drew me into the room. "'What's the meaning of this, ma'am? Don't get trying any little games on me,' said I in my roughest way, and I can put it on rough when I like. 
It'll be the worse for you if you play me any trick, I added, showing her my knife. I will play you no trick, said she. On the contrary, I am your friend, and I wish to help you. Excuse me, ma'am, but I find it hard to believe that, said I. Why should you wish to help me? I have my own reasons, said she, and then suddenly, with those black eyes blazing out of her white face, It's because I hate him. Hate him. Hate him. Now you understand? I remembered what the landlord had told me, and I did understand. I looked at her ladyship's face, and I knew that I could trust her. She wanted to revenge herself upon her husband. She wanted to hit him where it would hurt him most, upon the pocket. She hated him so that she would even lower her pride to take such a man as me into her confidence, if she could gain her end by doing so. I've hated some folk in my time, but I don't think I ever understood what hate was, until I saw that woman's face in the light of the taper. You'll trust me now? said she, with another coaxing touch upon my sleeve. Yes, your ladyship. You know me, then? I can guess who you are. I dare say my wrongs are the talk of the county, but what does he care for that? He only cares for one thing in the whole world, and that you can take from him this night. Have you a bag? No, your ladyship. Shut the shutter behind you, then no one can see the light. You are quite safe. The servants all sleep in the other wing. I can show you where all the most valuable things are. You cannot carry them all, though, so we must pick the best. The room in which I found myself was long and low, with many rugs and skins scattered about on a polished wood floor. Small cases stood here and there, and the walls were decorated with spears and swords and paddles and other things which find their way into museums. There were some queer clothes, too, which had been brought from savage countries, and the lady took down a large leather sack bag from among them. This sleeping sack will do. Now, come with me, and I will show you where the medals are. It was like a dream to me to think that this tall white woman was the lady of the house and that she was lending me a hand to rob her own home. I could have burst out laughing at the thought of it, and yet there was something in that pale face of hers which stopped my laughter and turned me cold and serious. She swept on in front of me like a spirit, with the green taper in her hand, and I walked behind with my sack until we came to a door at the end of the museum. It was locked, but the key was in it, and she led me through. The room beyond was a small one, hung all round with curtains which had pictures on them. It was the hunting of a deer that was painted on it, as I remember, and in the flicker of that light you'd have sworn that the dogs and the horses were streaming round the walls. The only other thing in the room was a row of cases made of walnut, with brass ornaments. They had glass tops, and beneath this glass I saw the long lines of those gold medals, some of them as big as a plate and half an inch thick, all resting upon red velvet and glowing and gleaming in the darkness. My fingers were just itching to be at them, and I slipped my knife under the lock of one of the cases to wrench it open. Wait a moment, said she, laying her hand upon my arm. You might do better than this. I am very well satisfied, ma'am, said I, and much obliged to your ladyship for the kind assistance. You can do better, she repeated. Would not golden sovereigns be worth more to you than these things? Why, yes, said I. That's the best of all. Well, said she, he sleeps just above our head. It is but one short staircase. There is a tin box with money enough to fill this bag under his bed. How can I get it without waking him? What matter if he does wake? She looked very hard at me as she spoke. You could keep him from calling out. Uh, no, no, ma'am, I'll have none of that. Just as you like, said she. I thought that you were a stout-hearted sort of man by your appearance. But I see that I made a mistake. If you are afraid to run the risk of one old man, then of course you cannot have the gold which is under his bed. You are the best judge of your own business, but I should think that you would do better at some other trade. I'll not have murder on my conscience. You could overpower him without harming him. I never said anything about murder. The money lies under the bed. But if you are faint-hearted, it is better that you should not attempt it. She worked upon me so, partly with her scorn and partly with this money that she held before my eyes, that I believe I should have yielded and taken my chances upstairs, had it not been that I saw her eyes following the struggle within me in such a crafty, malignant fashion that it was evident she was bent upon making me the tool of her revenge, and that she would leave me no choice but to do the old man an injury or to be captured by him. She felt suddenly that she was giving herself away, and she changed her face to a kindly, friendly smile, but it was too late, for I had had my warning. I will not go upstairs, said I. I have all I want here. She looked her contempt at me, and there was never a face which could look at plainer. 
Very good. You can take these metals. I should be glad if you would begin at this end. I suppose they will all be the same value when melted down, but these are the ones which are the rarest and therefore the most precious to him. It's not necessary to press the locks. If you press that brass knob, you will find that there is a secret spring. Oh, so take that small one first. It's the very apple of his eye. She had opened one of the cases, and the beautiful things all lay exposed before me. I had my hand upon the one which she had pointed out, when suddenly a change came over her face, and she held up one finger as a warning. She whispered. What is that? Far away in the silence of the house we heard a low, dragging, shuffling sound, and the distant tread of feet. She closed and fastened the case in an instant. It's my husband, she whispered. All right, don't be alarmed. I'll arrange it. Here, quick, behind the tapestry. She pushed me behind the painted curtains upon the wall, my empty leather bag still in my hand. Then she took her taper and walked quickly into the room from which we had come. From where I stood, I could see her through the open door. Is that you, Robert? She cried. The light of a candle shone through the door of the museum, and the shuffling steps came nearer and nearer. Then I saw a face in the doorway, a great heavy face, all lines and creases, with a huge curving nose and a pair of gold glasses fixed across it. He had to throw his head back to see through the glasses, and that great nose thrust out in front of him like a beak of some sort of fowl. He was a big man, very tall and burly, so that in his loose dressing gown his figure seemed to fill up the whole doorway. He had a pile of gray, curling hair all round his head, but his face was clean-shaven. His mouth was thin and small and prim, hidden away under his long, masterful nose. He stood there, holding the candle in front of him and looking at his wife with a queer, malicious gleam in his eye. It only needed that one look to tell me that he was as fond of her as she was of him. "'How's this?' he asked. "'Some new tantrum? What do you mean by wandering around the house? Why don't you go to bed?' "'I could not sleep,' she answered. She spoke languidly and wearily. If she was an actress once, she had not forgotten her calling. "'Might I suggest,' said he, in that same mocking kind of voice, "'that a good conscience is an excellent aid to sleep.' "'That cannot be true,' she answered. "'For you sleep very well.' "'I have only one thing in my life to be ashamed of,' said he, and his hair bristled up with anger until he looked like an old cockatoo. "'You know best what that is. It is a mistake which has brought its own punishment with it.' To me, as well as to you, remember that. You have very little to whine about. It was I who stooped, and you who rose. Rose! Yes, Rose. I suppose you do not deny that it is a promotion to exchange the music hall for mannering hall. Fool that I was ever to take you out of your true sphere. If you think so, why do you not separate? Because private misery is better than public humiliation. Because it is easier to suffer for a mistake than to own to it because also I like to keep you in my sight, and to know that you cannot go back to him. You villain! You cowardly villain! Yes, yes, my lady, I know your secret ambition, but it shall never be while I live, and if it happens after my death, I would at least take care that you go to him as a beggar. You and your dear Edward will never have the satisfaction of squandering my savings, and you may make up your mind to that, my lady. Why are those shutters and the windows open? I found the night very close. It is not safe. How do you know that some tramp may not be outside? Are you aware that my collection of medals is worth more than any similar collection in the world? You have left the door open also. What is there to prevent anyone from rifling the cases? I was here. I know you were. I heard you moving around in the metal room, and that was why I came down. What were you doing? Looking at the medals, what else should I be doing? This curiosity is something new. He looked suspiciously at her and moved on toward the inner room, she walking beside him. It was at this moment that I saw something which startled me. I had laid my clasp knife open upon the top of one of the cases, and there it lay, in full view. She saw it before he did, and with a woman's cunning she held her taper out so that the light of it came between Lord Mannering's eyes and the knife. Then she took it in her left hand and held it against her gown out of his sight. He looked about from case to case. I could have put my hand at one time upon his long nose, but there was nothing to show that the metals had been tampered with, and so, still snarling and grumbling, he shuffled off into the other room once more. And now I have to speak of what I heard rather than what I saw, but I swear to you, as I shall stand some day before my Maker that what I say is the truth. 
When they passed into the outer room, I saw him lay his candle upon the corner of one of the tables, and he sat himself down, but in such a position that he was just out of my sight. She moved behind him, as I could tell from the fact that the light of her taper threw his long, lumpy shadow upon the floor in front of him. Then he began talking about this man whom he called Edward, and every word that he said was like a blistering drop of vitriol. He spoke low so that I could not hear it all, but from what I heard I should guess that she would as soon have been lashed with a whip. At first she said some hot words in reply, but then she was silent, and he went on and on in that cold, mocking voice of his, nagging and insulting and tormenting, until I wondered that she could bear to stand there in silence and listen to it. Then suddenly I heard him say in a sharp voice, Come from behind me! Leave go of my collar! What? Would you dare to strike me? There was a sound like a blow, just a soft sort of thud, and then I heard him cry out, Good Lord, it's blood! He shuffled with his feet as if he was getting up, and then I heard another blow, and he cried out, Oh, you she-devil! and was quiet, except for a dripping and splashing upon the floor. I ran out from behind my curtain at that and rushed into the other room, shaking all over with the horror of it. The old man had slipped down in the chair, and his dressing gown had rucked up until he looked as if he had a monstrous hump to his back. His head, with the gold glasses still fixed on his nose, was lolling over on one side, and his little mouth was open, just like a dead fish. I could not see where the blood was coming from, but I could hear it drumming upon the floor. She stood behind him with the candle shining full upon her face. Her lips were pressed together and her eyes shining, and a touch of color had come into each of her cheeks. It just wanted that to make her the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life. "'You've done it now,' said I. "'Yes,' said she in her quiet way. "'I've done it now.' "'What are you going to do?' I asked. "'They'll have you for murder as sure as fate.' "'Never fear about me. I have nothing to live for and it does not matter.' Give me a hand to set him straight in the chair. It is horrible to see him like this. I did so, though it turned me cold all over to touch him. Some of his blood came upon my hand and sickened me. Now, said she, you may as well have the medals as anyone else. Take them and go. I don't want them. I only want to get away. I was never mixed up with a business like this before. Nonsense, said she. You came for the medals and here they are at your mercy. Why should you not have them? There is no one to prevent you. I held the bag still in my hand. She opened the case, and between us we threw a hundred or so of the medals into it. They were all from the one case, but I could not bring myself to wait for any more. Then I made for the window, for the very air of this house seemed to poison me after what I had seen and heard. As I looked back, I saw her standing there, tall and graceful, with the light in her hand, just as I had seen her first. She waved goodbye, and I waved back at her and sprang out into the gravel drive. I thank the Lord that I can lay my hand upon my heart and say that I have never done a murder. But perhaps it would be different if I had been able to read that woman's mind and thoughts. There might have been two bodies in the room instead of one, if I could have seen behind that last smile of hers. But I thought of nothing but getting safely away, and it never entered my head how she might be fixing the rope round my neck. I had not taken five steps out from the window skirting down the shadow of the house in the way that I had come when I heard a scream that might have raised the parish, and then another, and another. Murder! She cried. Murder! Murder! Help! And her voice rang out in the quiet of the night time and sounded over the whole countryside. It went through my head, that dreadful cry. In an instant, lights began to move and windows to fly up, not only in the house behind me, but at the lodge and in the stables in the front. Like a frightened rabbit, I bolted down the drive, but I heard the clang of the gate being shut before I could reach it. Then I hid my bag of metals under some dry sticks, and I tried to get away across the park, but someone saw me in the moonlight, and presently I had half a dozen of them with dogs upon my heels. I crouched down among the brambles, but those dogs were too many for me, and I was glad when the men came up and prevented me from being torn to pieces. They seized me and dragged me back to the room from which I had come. "'Is this the man, your ladyship?' asked the oldest of them, the same whom I found out afterwards to be the butler. She had been bending over the body with her handkerchief to her eyes, and now she turned upon me with the face of fury. Oh, what an actress that woman was. "'Yes, yes, it is the fairy man!' she cried. "'Oh, you villain, you cruel villain, to treat an old man so!' 
There was a man there who seemed to be a village constable. He laid his hand upon my shoulder. "'What do you say to that?' said he. "'It was she who did it,' I cried, pointing at the woman, whose eyes never flinched once before mine. "'Come, come, try another,' said the constable, and one of the men-servants struck at me with his fist. "'I tell you that I saw her do it. She stabbed him twice with a knife. She first helped me to rob him, and then she murdered him.' The footman tried to strike me again, but she held up her hand. "'Do not hurt him,' said she. "'I think that his punishment may safely be left to the law.' "'I'll see to that, your ladyship,' said the constable. "'Your ladyship actually saw the crime committed, did you not?' "'Yes, yes, I saw it with my own eyes. It was horrible. We heard the noise and we came down. My poor husband was in front.' The man had one of those cases open and was filling a black leather bag which he held in his hand. He rushed past us and my husband seized him. There was a struggle and he stabbed him twice. There you can see the blood upon his hands. If I am not mistaken, his knife is still in Lord Mattering's body. <sighs> Look at the blood upon her hands, I cried. She has been holding up his lordship's head, you lying rascal, said the butler. And here's the very sack her ladyship spoke of, said the constable, as a groom came in with the one which I had dropped in my flight. And here are the medals inside it. That's good enough for me. We will keep him safe here tonight, and tomorrow the inspector and I can take him to Salisbury. Poor creature. For my own part. I forgive him any injury which he has done me. Who knows what temptation may have driven him to crime? His conscience and the law will give him punishment enough without any reproach of mine rendering it more bitter. I could not answer. I tell you, sir, I could not answer, so taken aback was I by the assurance of the woman. And so, seeming by my silence to agree to all that she had said, I was dragged away by the butler and the constable into the cellar, in which they locked me for the night. There, sir, I have told you the whole story of the events which led up to the murder of Lord Mannering by his wife upon the night of September the 14th in the year 1894. Perhaps you will put my statement on one side as the constable did at the Mannering Towers, or the judge afterwards at the county assizes. Or perhaps you will see that there is a ring of truth in what I say, and you will follow it up and so make your name forever as a man who does not grudge personal trouble where justice is to be done. I have only you to look to, sir, and if you will clear my name of this false accusation, then I will worship you as one man never yet worshipped another. But if you fail me, then I give you my solemn promise that I will rope myself up this day month to the bar of my window, and from that time on I will come to plague you in your dreams, if ever yet one man was able to come back and haunt another." What I ask you to do is very simple. Make inquiries about this woman, watch her, learn her past history, find out what use she is making of the money which has come to her, and whether there is not a man, Edward, as I have stated. If from all this you learn anything which shows you her real character, or which seems to you to corroborate the story which I have told you, then I am sure that I can rely upon your goodness of heart to come to the rescue of an innocent man. So today we learned that some mysteries may be easy to solve, while others can be a little more complicated. Thanks very much to my guests this week, Lisa Michaud and Aaron B. Lillis. And again, make sure you check out Aaron's other work via the links in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. And if you did, I would love it if you spread the word in whatever way you see fit. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell everybody you know. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now next week, I'll be featuring an author I've been wanting to do for quite a while now. You may actually know him best through a radio adaptation of one of his works that was presented by another famous auteur with a last name pronounced the same as his own. Are you confused yet? 
Well, you can see more on social media before next week's show, or if you are a weaver of yarns over on Patreon, you can hear that episode right now. So until that time, whether it's next week or the next five minutes, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.